This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Principles, Life and Work, written by Ray Dalio in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 4. Understand that people are wired very differently. Because of the different ways that our brains are wired, we all experience reality in different ways, and any single way is essentially distorted. This is something that we need to acknowledge and deal with, so if you want to know what is true and what to do about it, you must understand your own brain. That insight led me to talk with many psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, personality testers, and other believable people in the field, and it led me to read many books. I discovered that though it is obvious to all of us that we are born with different strengths and weaknesses in some areas such as common sense, creativity, memory, synthesis, attention to detail, and so forth, examining these differences objectively makes even most scientists uncomfortable. But that doesn't make it any less necessary, so I pushed forward with these explorations over several decades. As a result, I have learned a lot that helped me and that I believe can help you. In fact, I attribute as much of my success to what I've learned about the brain as I do to my understanding of economics and investing. In this chapter, I will share some of the th amazing things I've learned. Why I turned to neuroscience. When I started Bridgewater two years out of business school, I had to manage people for the first time. At first, I thought that hiring smart people, for instance, the top students out of the top schools, should get me capable employees, but as often as not, those people didn't turn out well. Book smarts didn't typically equate out to the type of smarts I needed. I wanted to work with independent thinkers who were creative, conceptual, and had a lot of common sense. But I had a hard time finding those sorts of people, and even when I did, I was shocked at how differently their brains seemed to work. It was as though we were speaking different languages. For example, those who were conceptual and imprecise spoke one language, while those who were literal and precise spoke another. At the same time, we talked this up to communication problems, but the differences were much deeper than that, and they were painful for all of us, particularly when we were trying to achieve big things together. I remember one research project, an ambitious attempt to systemize our global understanding of the bond markets that took place years ago. Bob Prince was running it, and while we agreed conceptually on what we were trying to do, the project didn't get push, pushed through to results. We'd meet with Bob and his team to agree on the goal and lay out how to get there, but when they'd go off to work on it, they'd make no progress. The progress was that the conceptual people who visualized what should be done in vague ways expected more literal people to figure out for themselves how to do it. When they didn't, the more conceptual people thought the more literal people had no imagination, and more literal people thought the more conceptual folks had their heads in the clouds. To make matters worse, none of them knew which were which. The more literal people thought that they were as conceptual as the conceptual people and vice versa. In short, we were gridlocked, and everyone thought it was someone else's fault, that the people were just locking horns with we were we were locking horns with blind, stupid, or stubborn people. Those meetings were painful for everyone, because no one was clear about what they were good or bad at. Everybody expressed opinions about everything, and there wasn't any sensible way of sorting through them. We discussed why the group was failing, which led us to see that the individuals Bob had chosen for his team reflected his own strengths and weaknesses in their own roles. 
While that took frankness and open-mindedness and was a big step forward, it wasn't recorded systematically and converted into adequate changes, so the same people kept making the same sort of mistakes over and over again. Isn't it obvious that our different ways of thinking, our emotional responses, and our not having ways of dealing with them is crippling us? What are we supposed to do? Not deal with them? I'm sure you've been in contentious disagreements before, ones where people have different points of view and can't agree on what's right. Good people with good intentions get angry and emotional. It is frustrating and often becomes personal. Most companies avoid this by suppressing open debate and having those with the most authority simply make the calls. I didn't want that kind of company. I knew we needed to dig more deeply into what was preventing us from working together more effectively, bring those things to the surface, and explore them. Bridgewater's roughly 1,500 employees do many different things. Some strive to understand the global markets, others develop technologies, still others serve clients, manage health insurance and other benefits for employees, provide legal guidance, manage IT and facilities, and so on. All these activities require different types of people to work together in ways that harvest the bad ideas and throw away the worst. Organizing people to complement their strengths and compensate for their weaknesses is like conducting an orchestra. It can be magnificent if done well and terrible if done poorly. While know thyself and to thine own self be true are fundamental tenets I have heard long before I began looking into the brain, I had no idea about how to go getting the knowledge or how to act on it until we made these discoveries about how people think differently. The better we know ourselves, the better we can recognize both what can be changed and how to change it, and what can't be changed and what we can do about that. So no matter what you set out to do, whether on your own, as a member of an organization, or as its director, you need to understand how you and other people are wired. 4.1. Understand the power that comes from knowing how you and others are wired. As I related in the first part of this book, my first breakthrough in understanding how people think differently occurred when I was a young father and had my kids tested by Dr. Sue Quinlan. I found the results remarkable because she not only confirmed my own observations of the ways that their minds were working at the time, but also predicted how they would develop in the future. For example, one of my kids was struggling with arithmetic. Because he tested well in mathematical reasoning, she correctly told him that if he pushed through the boredom of rote memorization required in elementary school, he would love the higher level concepts he would be exposed to when older. These insights opened my eyes to new possibilities. I turned to her and others years later when I was trying to figure out the different thinking styles of both my employees and colleagues. At first, the experts gave, both bad, gave me both bad and good advice. Many seemed as if they were not interested in making people feel good or not feel good than they were at getting at the truth. Even more startling, I found that most psychologists didn't know much about neuroscience, and most neuroscientists didn't know much about psychology, and both were reluctant to connect the physiological differences in people's brains to the differences in their aptitudes and behaviors. But eventually, I found Dr. Bob Eichinger, who opened the world of psychometric testing to me. Using Myers-Briggs and other assessments, we evolved a much clearer and more data-driven way of understanding our different types of thinking. Our differences weren't a product of poor communication, it was the other way around. Our different th ways of thinking led to our poor communication. From conversations with experts in my own ob observations, I learned that many of our mental differences are physiological. 
Just as our physical attributes determine the limits of what we are able to do physically, some people are tall and others are short, some muscular and others weak, our brains are innately different in ways that set the parameters of what we are able to do mentally. As with our bodies, some parts of our brains cannot be materially affected by external experience in the same way that your skeleton isn't changed much through working out, while other parts can be strengthened through exercise, and I will have a lot more to say about brain plasticity later in this chapter. This was driven home to me by my son Paul's three-year struggle with bipolar disorder. As terrifying and frustrating as his behavior was, I came to realize that it was due to his brain's chemistry, specifically its secreting serotonin and dopamine in spurts and stutters. As I went through that terrible journey with him, I experienced the frustration and anger of trying to reason with someone who wasn't thinking well. I constantly had to remind myself that there was no basis for my anger because his distorted logic was a product of his physiology. And I saw for myself how the doctors who approached it that way brought him to a state of crystal clarity. The experience not only taught me a lot about how brains work, but why creative genius often exists at the edge of insanity. Many highly productive and creative people have suffered from bipolar disorder. Among them, Ernest, Heming Ernest Hemingway, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, Vincent van Gogh, Jackson Pollock, Virginia Woolf, Winston Churchill, and the psychologist K. Redfold Jameson, who has written frankly about her own experiences with the disease in her book, An Unquiet Mind. I learned that we are all different because of the different ways that the machine that is our brain works, and that nearly one in five Americans are clinically mentally ill in one way or another. Once I understood that it's all physiological, many things became clearer to me. While I used to get angry and frustrated at people because of the choices they made, I came to realize that they weren't intentionally acting in a way that seemed counterproductive. They were just living out things as they saw them, based on how their brains were worked. I also realized that as off-base as they seemed to me, they saw me the same way. The only sensible way of behaving with each other was to look down upon ourselves with mutual understanding so we could make objective sense of things. Not only did this make our disagreements less frustrating, it also allowed us to maximize our effectiveness. Everyone is like a Lego set of attributes, with each piece reflecting the workings of a different part of their brain. All these pieces come together to determine what each person is like, and if you know what a person is like, you'll have a pretty good idea of what you can expect from them. A. We are born with attributes that can both help us and hurt us, depending on their application. Most attributes are a double-edged sword that brings potential benefits and potential harm. The more extreme the attribute, the more extreme the potential good or bad outcome it is likely to produce. For example, a highly creative, goal-oriented person good at imagining new ideas might undervalue the minutia of daily life, which is also important. He might be so driven in his pursuit of long-term goals that he might have disdain for people who focus on the details of daily life. Similarly, a task-oriented person who is great with details might undervalue creativity, and worse still, may squelch it in the interests of efficiency. These two people might, take a, might make a great team, but are likely to have trouble taking advantage of the ways they're complementary because the ways their minds work make it difficult for them to see the value of the other's ways of thinking. Having expectations for people, including yourself, without knowing what they are like is a sure way to get in trouble. 
I learned this the hard way through years of frustrating conversations and the pain of expecting things from people who were constitutionally incapable of delivering them. I'm sure that I caused them plenty of pain too. Over time, I realized that I needed a systematic approach to capturing and recording our differences so that we could actively take them into consideration when putting people into different roles at Bridgewater. This led to one of my most valuable management tools, baseball cards, which I mentioned in the first part of this book. Just as a baseball card compiles the relevant data on a baseball player, helping fans know what that player is good and bad at, I decided that it would be similarly helpful for us to have cards for all our players at Bridgewater. I created the attributes in creating the attributes for our baseball cards, I used a combination of adjectives we already used to describe people like conceptual, reliable, creative, determined, the actions people took or didn't take such as holding others accountable, and pushing through to results, in terms from personality tests such as extroverted or judging. Once the cards were established, I created a process to have people evaluate each other, with the people rated highest in each dimension, like most creative, having more weight on the ratings of other people within that dimension. People with proven track records in a certain area would get more believability or decision-making weight within that area. By recording these qualities in people's baseball cards, others who'd never worked with them before could know what to expect from them. When people changed, their rating would change. And when they didn't change, we were even more sure of what we could expect of them. Naturally, when I introduced this tool, people were skeptical or scared of it for various reasons. Some were afraid that the cards would be inaccurate. Others thought it would be uncomfortable to have their weaknesses made so apparent or that it would lead to their being pigeonholed, inhibiting their growth. Still, others thought it would be too complex to be practical. Imagine how you would feel if you were asked to force rank all your colleagues on creativity, determination, or reliability. Most people at first find the prospect frightening. Still, I knew that we needed to be radically open in recording and considering what people were like and that things would eventually evolve to address people's concerns if we were sensible about how we approached the process. Today, most everyone at Bridgewater finds these baseball cards to be essential, and we have built a whole suite of other tools, which will be further described in work principles, to support our drive to understand what people are like and who is believable at what. I've already noted that our unique way of operating and the treasure trove of data we accumulated brought us to the attention of some world-renowned organizational psychologists and researchers. Bob Keegan of Harvard University, Adam Grant of the Wharton School, and Ed Hess of the University of Virginia have written about us extensively, and I have learned a great deal from them in turn. In a way I never intended, our trial-and-error discovery process has put us at the cutting edge of academic thinking about personal development within organizations. As Keegan wrote in his book, An Everyone Culture, quote, From the individual experience of probing in every one-on-one -on -one meeting to the technologically integrated processes for discussing issues in baseball cards to the company-wide practices of daily updates and cases, Bridgewater has built an ecosystem to support personal development. The system helps everyone in the company confront the truth about what everyone is like. Our journey of discovery has coincided with an incredibly fertile epoch in neuroscience, when, thanks to rapid advances in brain imaging and the ability to gather and process big data, our understanding has accelerated dramatically. As with all sciences on the cusp of breakthroughs, I am sure that much of what is thought to be true today 
will soon be radically improved. But what I do know is how incredibly beautiful and useful it is to understand how the thinking machine between our ears works. Here is some of what I've learned. The brain is even more complex than we could imagine. It has an estimated 89 billion tiny computers called neurons that are connected to each other through many trillions of wires called axons and chemical synapses. As David Eagleman describes it in his wonderful book, Incognito, quote, your brain is built of cells called neurons and glia, hundreds of billions of them. Each one of them is as complex as a city. The cells and neurons are connected in a network of such staggering complexity that it bankrupts human language and necessitates new strains of mathematics. A typical neuron makes about 10,000 connections to neighboring neurons. Given billions of neurons, this means that there are as many connections in a single cubic centimeter of brain tissue as there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. When we are born, our brains are pre- sorry, end quote with galaxy. When we are born, our brains are pre-programmed with learning, accumulated over hundreds of millions of years. For example, researchers at UVA have shown that while many people have an instinctual fear of snakes, no one has an instinctual fear of flowers. The brains that we are born with had learned that snakes are dangerous and flowers are not. There's a reason for that. There is one grand design for the brains of all mammals, fish, birds, amphibians, and reptiles, which was established nearly 300 million years ago and has been evolving ever since. Just as cars have evolved in different versions like sedans, SUVs, or sports cars, these that rely on many of the same underlying parts, all vertebrate brains have similar parts that do similar things, but that are well adapted to the needs of their particular species. For example, birds have superior occipital lobes because they need a spot prey and predator from great heights. While we humans think of ourselves as superior overall because we overemphasize the importance of our own advantages, other species could justifiably make the same claims on their own behalf. Birds for flight, eyesight, and instinctual magnetic navigation. Most animals for smell, and several for appearing to have particularly enjoyable sex. This universal brain has evolved from the bottom up, meaning that its oldest parts are its lower parts are evolutionary evolutionarily the oldest and the top parts the newest. The brainstem controls the subconscious processes that keep us alive and other us and other species alive, heartbeat, breathing, nervous system, and our degree of arousal and alertness. The next layer up, the cerebellum, gives us the ability to control our limb movements by coordinating sensory input with our muscles. Then comes the cerebrum, which includes the basal ganglia, controlling habit, and other parts of the limbic system, which control emotional responses and some movement. And the cerebral cortex, which is where our memories, thoughts, and a sense of consciousness reside. The newest and most advanced part of the cortex, that wrinkled mass of gray matter that looks like a bunch of intestines, is the neocortex, which is where learning, planning, imagination, and other higher-level thoughts come from. It accounts for a significantly higher ratio of the brain's gray matter than is found in the brains of other species. 4.2. Meaningful work and meaningful relationships aren't just nice things for ourselves. They are genetically programmed into us. 
Neuroscientists, psychologists, and evolutionists agree that the human brain comes pre-programmed with the need for and enjoyment of social cooperation. Our brains want it and develop better when we have it. The meaningful relationships we get from social cooperation make us happier, healthier, and more productive. Social cooperation is also integral to effective work. It is one of the defining characteristics of being human. Leonard Mladenow, in his excellent book Subliminal, writes, quote, We usually assume that what distinguishes us from other species is IQ, but it is our social IQ that ought to be the principal quality of differentiation, end quote. He points out that humans have a unique ability to understand what other people are like and how they are likely to behave. The brain comes programmed to develop this ability. By the time they are four years old, most children are able to read others' mental states. This sort of human understanding and cooperation is what makes us so accomplished as a species. As Mladenow explains, quote, building a car, for example, requires the participation of thousands of people with diverse skills in diverse lands performing diverse tasks. Metals like iron must be extracted from the ground and processed. Glass, rubber, and plastics must be created from numerous chemical precursors and molded. Batteries, radiators, and countless other parts must be produced. Electronic and mechanical systems must be designed, and it all must come together, coordinated from far and wide in one factory, so that the car may be assembled. Even today, the coffee and bagel you might consume while driving to work in the morning is the result of activities of people all over the world. End quote. In his book, The Meaning of Human Existence, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Edward O. Wilson surmises that between 1 million and 2 million years ago, when our ancestors were somewhere between chimpanzees and homo sapiens, the brain evolved in ways supporting cooperation so man could hunt and do other activities. This led the centers of memory and reasoning in the prefrontal cortex to develop beyond those of our, primitive, our primate relatives. As groups became more powerful than individuals and our brains evolved in ways that made larger groups manageable, competition between groups became more important than competition between individuals, and groups that had more cooperative individuals did better than those without. This evolution led to the development of altruism, morality, and the sense of, of conscience and honor. Wilson explains that man is perpetually suspended between the two extreme forces that created us, quote, individual selection, which prompted sin, and group selection, which pro promoted virtue, end quote. Which of these forces, self-interest or collective interest, wins out in any organization is a function of that organization's culture, which is a function of the people who shape it. But it's clear that collective interest is what's best, not just for the organization, but for the individuals who make it up. As I'll explain in Work Principles, the rewards of working together to make the pie bigger are greater than the rewards of self-interest, not only in terms of how much pie one gets, but also in the psychic rewards wired into our brains that make us happier and healthier. Knowing how brain has evolved thus far, we might extrapolate the past into the future to imagine where it will go. Clearly, the evolution of the brain has moved from being non-thinking and self-focused toward being more abstract and more universally focused. For example, the brain evolution that I described has given us, some people more than others, the ability to see ourselves and our circumstances from a higher, holistic level, and in some cases, to value the whole that we are part of even more than ourselves. 
a few years ago, I had a conversation with the Dalai Lama in which I explained to him the contemporary neuroscience view that all of our thinking and feeling is due to physiology. In other words, the chemicals, electricity, and biology in our brains working like a machine. This implied that spirituality is due to the, these physiological mechanics rather than something coming from, ab from above. So I asked him what he thought about that. Without hesitation, he responded, absolutely, and told me that the next day he was meeting with the University of Wisconsin professor of neuroscience who had helped him to learn about this, and he asked me if I wanted to join him. Regrettably, I could not, but I recommended to him a book I'd read on the subject called The Spiritual Brain, which I also recommend to you. In our conversation, we went on to discuss the similarities and differences between spirituality and religion. His view was that prayer and meditation seemed to have similar effects on the brain in producing feelings of spirituality, the rising above oneself to feel a greater connection to the whole, but that each religion adds its own different superstitions on top of that common feeling of spirituality. Rather than trying to squeeze my own summary of his thinking in here, I'll simply recommend the Dalai Lama's book, Beyond Religion, if you are interested in learning more. In imagining what the future of our thinking will be like, it's also interesting to consider how man himself might change how the brain works. We are certainly doing that with drugs and technology. Given advances in genetic engineering, it's reasonable that to expect that someday genetic engineers might mix and match features of different species' brains for different purposes. If you want to have a heightened sense of sight, say, genetic engineers might be able to manipulate the human brain so it grows optic lobes more like those of the bird. But since much things won't happen anytime soon, let's get back to the practical question of how all this can help us better deal with ourselves and each other. 4.3. Understand the great brain battles and how you want and how to control them to get what you want. The following sections explore the different ways your brain fights for control of you. While I will re refer to the specific parts of the brain that neurophysiologists believe are responsible for specific types of thinking and emotions, the actual physiology is much more complex, and scientists are only now beginning to understand it. A. Realize that the conscious mind is in a battle with the subconscious mind. Earlier in the book, I introduced the concept of the two yous and explained how your higher level you can look down on your lower level you to make sure that your lower level you is not sabotaging what your higher level you wants. Though I've often seen these two yous in action in myself and others, it wasn't until I learned why they exist that I really understood them. As with animals, many of our decision-making drivers are below the surface. An animal doesn't decide to fly or hunt or sleep or fight in the way that we go about making many of our choices of what to do. It simply follows the instructions that come from the subconscious parts of the brain. These same sorts of instructions come to us from the same parts of our brains, sometimes for good, good evolutionary reasons, and sometimes to our detriment. Our subconscious fears and desires drive our motivations and actions through emotions such as love, fear, and inspiration. It's physiological. Love, for example, is a cocktail of chemicals such as oxytocin secreted by the pituitary gland. While it's always assumed that logical conversation is the best way for people to get at what is true, armed with this new knowledge about the brain, I came to understand that there are large parts of our brains that don't do what is logical. For example, I learned that when people refer to their feelings, such as saying, 
I feel that you were unfair with me, they are typically referring to messages that originate in the emotional subconscious parts of their brains. I also came to understand that while some subconscious parts of our brains are dangerously animalistic, others are smarter and quicker than our conscious minds. Our greatest moments of inspiration often pop up from our subconscious. We experience these creative breakthroughs when we are relaxed and not trying to access the part of the brain in which they reside, which is generally the neocortex. When you say, I just thought of something, you notice your subconscious mind telling your conscious mind something. With training, it's possible to open this stream of communication. Many people only see the conscious mind and aren't really aware of the benefits of connecting it to the subconscious. The way to accomplish more is to cram more into the conscious mind and make it work harder, but this is often counterproductive. While it may seem counterintuitive, clearing your head can be the best way to make progress. Knowing this, I now understand why creativity comes to me when I relax, like when I'm in the shower, and how meditation helps open this connection. Because it is physiological, I can actually feel the creative thoughts coming from elsewhere and flowing into my conscious mind. It's a kick to understand how that works. But a note of caution is in order as well. When thoughts and instructions come to me from my subconscious, acting on them immediately, I have gotten in the habit of examining them with my conscious, logical mind. I have found that in addition to helping me figure out which thoughts are valid and why I'm reacting to them as I do, doing this opens further communication between my conscious and subconscious minds. It's helpful to write down the results of this process. In fact, that's how my principles came about. If you take nothing else away from this chapter, be aware of your subconscious, of how it can both harm you and help you, and how, by consciously reflecting on what comes out of it, perhaps with the help of others you can become happier and more effective. B. Knowing that the most constant struggle is between feeling and thinking. There are no greater battles than those between our feelings, most importantly controlled by our amygdala, which operates subconsciously, and our rational thinking, most importantly controlled by our prefrontal cortex, which operates consciously. If you understand how these battles occur, you will understand why it is so important to reconcile what you get from your subconscious with what you get from your conscious mind. That damned amygdala, which is a little almond-shaped structure that lies deeply embedded in the cerebrum, is one of the most powerful parts of your brain. It controls your behavior, even though you're not conscious of it. How does it work? Well, when something upsets us, and that something could be a sound, a sight, or just a gut feeling, the amygdala sends notice to our bodies to prepare to fight or flee. The heartbeat speeds up, the blood pressure rises, and breathing quickens. During an argument, you'll often notice a physical response similar to how you react to fear. For instance, rapid heartbeats and tensing muscles. Recognizing fear, or recognizing that, your conscious mind, which resides in the prefrontal cortex, can refuse to obey these instructions. Typically, these amygdala hijackings come on fast and dissipate quickly, except in rare cases, such as when a person develops post-traumatic stress disorder from a particularly horrible event or series of events. Knowing how these hijackings work, you know that if you allow yourself to react spontaneously, you will be prone to overreact. You can also comfort yourself with the knowledge that the psychological pain you are experiencing will go away before very long. C. Reconcile your feelings and your thinking. For most people, life is a never-ending battle. These two parts of the brain. 
While the amygdala's reactions comes in spurts and then subside, reactions from the prefrontal cortex are more gradual and constant. The biggest difference between people who guide their own personal evolution and achieve their goals and those who don't is that those who make progress reflect on what causes their amygdala hijackings. D. Choose your habits well. Habits are probably the most powerful tool in your brain's toolbox. It is driven by a golf ball-sized lump of tissue called the basal ganglia at the base of the cerebrum. It is so deep-seated and instinctual that we are not conscious of it, though it controls our actions. If you do just about anything frequently enough over time, you will form a habit that will control you. Good habits are those that get you to do what the upper-level you wants to do. And bad habits are those that are controlled by the lower-level you and stand in the way of getting what your upper-level you wants. You can create a better set of habits if you understand how this part of the brain works. For example, you can develop a habit that will make you need to work out at the gym. Developing this skill takes some work. The first step is recognizing how habits develop in the first place. Habit is essentially inertia, the strong tendency to keep doing what you have been doing, or not doing what you have not been doing. Research suggests that if you stick with the behavior for approximately 18 months, you will have a strong tendency to stick to it nearly forever. For a long time, I didn't appreciate the extent to which habits control people's behavior. I experienced this at Bridgewater in the form of people who agreed with our work principles in the abstract, but had trouble living by them. I also observed it with friends and family members who wanted to achieve something but constantly found themselves working against their own best interests. Then I read Charles Duhigg's best-selling book, The Power of Habit, which really opened my eyes. I recommend that you read it yourself if your interest in this subject goes deeper than what I'm able to cover here. Duhigg's core idea is the role of the, the three-step habit loop. The first step is a cue, some trigger that tells your brain to go into automatic mode and which habit to use, according to Duhigg. Step two is the routine, which can be physical or mental or emotional. Finally, there is a reward, which helps your brain figure out if this particular loop is worth remembering for the future. Repetition reinforces the loop over time until it becomes automatic. This anticipation and craving is the key to what animal trainers call operant conditioning, which is a method of training that uses positive reinforcement. For example, dog trainers use a sound, typically a clicker, to reinforce behavior by pairing that sound with a more desirable reward, like food, until the dog will perform the desired behavior when it merely hears the click. In humans, Duig says, rewards can be just about anything, ranging from food or drugs that cause physical sensations to emotional payoffs, such as the feelings of pride that accompany praise or self-congratulation. Habits put your brain on automatic pilot. In neuroscientific terms, the basal ganglia takes over from your cortex so that you can execute activities without even thinking about them. Reading Duig's book taught me that if you really want to change, the best thing you can do is choose which habits to acquire and which to get rid of, and then go about doing that. I recommend that you write down your three most harmful habits. Do that right now. Now, one of those habits and be committed to breaking it. Can you do it? That would be extraordinarily impactful. If you break all three, I guarantee you will radically improve the trajectory of your life. Or you can pick habits that you want to acquire and then acquire them. The most valuable habit I've acquired is using pain to trigger quality reflections. If you can acquire this habit 
yourself, you will learn what causes your pain and what you can do about it, and it will have an enormous impact on your effectiveness. E. Train your lower level you or with kindness and persistence to build the right habits. I think that the upper level you needed to fight with the lower level you to gain control, but over time, I've learned that it is more effective to train that subconscious emotional you the same way you would teach a child to behave the way you would like him or her to behave with loving kindness and persistence so that the right habits are acquired. F. Understand the differences between right-brained and left-brained thinking. Just as your brain has its conscious upper part and its subconscious lower part, it also has two halves called hemispheres. You might have heard it said that some people are more left-brained while others are more right-brained, and that's not just a saying. Caltech professor Roger Sperry won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for discovering it. In nutshell, the left hemisphere reasons sequentially, analyzes details, and excels at linear analysis. Left-brained or linear thinkers who are analytically strong are often called brain. The right hemisphere thinks across categories, recognizes themes, and synthesizes the big picture. Right-brained or lateral thinkers with more street smarts are often called smart. Most people tend to get more of their instructions from one side than the other, and they understanding people who get theirs from the opposite side. Experience has been left-brained folks tend to see right-brained folks as spacey or abstract, while right-brained thinkers tend to find left-brained thinkers literal or narrow. I wonderful results occur when people know where their own and others' inclinations lie, realizing that both ways of thinking are valuable, and when they assign responsibilities accordingly. G. Understand how much can and cannot change. This brings us to an important question. Can we change? We can learn new facts and skills, but we can also learn how can we also learn how to change how we are inclined to think? And the answer is a qualified yes. Brain plasticity is what allows your brain to change its soft wiring. For a long time, scientists believed that after a certain critical period in childhood, most of our brain's neurological con neurological connections were fixed and highly unlikely to change. But recent research has suggested that a wide variety of practices, from physical exercise to studying to meditation, can lead to physical and physiological changes in our brains that affect our abilities to think and form memories. In a study of Buddhist monks who had practiced more than 10,000 hours of meditation, researchers at the University of Wisconsin measured significantly higher levels of gamma waves in their brains. These waves are associated with perception and problem-solving. That doesn't mean that the brain is infinitely flexible. If you have a preference for a certain way of thinking, you might be able to train yourself to operate another way and find that easier to do over time, but you're very unlikely to change your underlying preference. Likewise, you may be able to train yourself to be more creative, but if you're not naturally creative, there's likely a limit to what you can do. That is simple reality. So we all might as well accept it and learn how to deal. There are coping mechanisms that we can use. For example, the creative, disorganized person who is likely to lose track of time can develop the habit of using alarms. The person who isn't good at some type of thinking can train himself to rely on the thinking of others who are better at it. The best way to change is through doing mental exercises. 
physical exercise. This can be painful unless you enlist the habit loop discussed earlier to connect the rewards to the actions, rewiring your brain to love learning and beneficial change. Remember that accepting your weaknesses is contrary to the instincts of those parts of your brain that want to hold on to the illusion that you are perfect. Doing the things that will reduce your instinctual defensiveness takes practice and requires operating in an environment that reinforces open-mindedness. As you will see when we get into work principles, I've developed a number of tools and techniques that help overcome that resistance individually and across organizations. Instead of expecting yourself or others to change, I found that it's often most effective to acknowledge one's weaknesses and create explicit guardrails against them. This is typically a faster and higher probability path to success. 4.4. Find out what you and others are like. Because of the biases with which we are wired, our self-assessments and our assessments of others tend to be highly inaccurate. Psychometric assessments are much more reliable. They are important in helping explore how people think during the hiring process and throughout employment. Though psychometric assessments cannot fully replace speaking with people and looking at their backgrounds and histories, they are far more powerful than traditional interviewing and screening methods. If I had to choose between just the assessments or just traditional job interviews to get at what people are like, I would choose the assessments, but fortunately we don't have to make that choice. The four main assessments we use are the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, the Workplace Personality Inventory, the Team Dimensions Profile, and Stratified Systems Theory. But we are constantly experimenting, for example, with the Big Five, so that our mix will certainly change. Whatever the mix, they all convey people's preferences for thinking and action. They also provide us with new attributes and terminologies that clarify and amplify those we had identified on our own. I will describe a few of them below. These descriptions are based on my own experiences and learnings, which are, in many ways, different from the official descriptions used by the assessment companies. A. Introversion versus Extroversion Introverts focus on the inner world and get their energy from ideas, memories, and experiences, while extroverts are externally focused and get their energy from being with people. Introversion and extroversion are also linked to differences in communication styles. If you have a friend who loves to talk it out about ideas and even has trouble thinking through something if there isn't someone around to work through it with, he or she is likely an extrovert. Introverts will usually find such conversations painful, preferring to think privately and share only after they've worked things out on their own. I've found that it is important to help each communicate in the way that they feel most comfortable. For example, introverts often prefer communicating in writing, such as email, rather than speaking in group settings and tend to be less open with their critical thoughts. B. Intuiting versus Sensing some people see big pictures, like the forest, and others see the details, like the trees. In the Myers-Briggs framework, these ways of seeing are best represented by the continuum from intuiting to sensing. You can get an idea of people's preferences by observing what they focus on. For example, when reading, a sensing person who focuses on details can be thrown off by typos such as there instead of there, while intuitive thinkers won't even notice the mistake. That is because the intuitive thinker's attention is focused on the context, first, and the details, second. 
Naturally, you'd rather have a sensing person than an intuitor preparing your legal documents where every I must be properly dotted and every T crossed just so. C. Thinking versus feeling. Some people make decisions based on logical analysis of objective facts, considering all the known, provable factors important to a given situation and using logic to determine the best course of action. This approach is an indicator of a preference for thinking and is how you'd hope your doctor thinks when he makes a diagnosis. Other people, who prefer feeling, focus on harmony between people. They are better suited to roles that require lots of empathy, interpersonal contact, and relationship building, for example, HR and customer service. Before we had assessments to identify these differences, conversations between thinkers and feelers were really frustrating. Now, we laugh as we bump up against our differences because we know what they are and can see them playing out in classic ways. D. Planning versus Perceiving Some people like to live in a planned, orderly way, and others prefer flexibility and spontaneity. Planners, or judgers in Myers-Briggs terms, like to focus on a plan and stick with it, while perceivers are prone to focus on what's happening around them and adapt. Perceivers work from the outside in. They see things happening and work backwards to understand the cause and how to respond. They also see many possibilities that they compare and choose from, often so many that they are confusing. In contrast, planners work from the inside out, first figuring out what they want to achieve and then how things ought to unfold. Planners and perceivers have trouble appreciating each other. Perceivers see new things and change direction often. This is discomforting to planners who weigh precedent much more heavily in their decision-making and assume if it was done a certain way before, it should be done the same way again. Similarly, planners can discomfort perceivers by being seemingly rigid and slow to adapt. E. Creators versus refiners versus advancers versus executors versus flexors. By identifying talents and preferences that lead people to feel a particular way, you can place them in jobs at which they will likely excel. At Bridgewater, we use a test called the Team Dimensions Profile, or TDP, to connect people with their preferred role. The five types identified are creators, refiners, advancers, executors, and flexors. Creators generate new ideas and original concepts. They prefer unstructured and abstract activities and thrive on innovation and unconventional practices. Advancers communicate these new ideas and carry them forward. They relish feelings and relationships and manage the human factors. They are excellent at generating enthusiasm for work. Refiners challenge ideas. They analyze projects for flaws, then refine them with a focus on, object, on objectivity and analysis. They love facts and theories and working with the systematic approach. Executors can also be thought of as implementers. They ensure that important, carry, important activities are carried out and goals accomplished. They are focused on details and the bottom line. Flexors are a combination of all four types. They can adapt their styles to fit certain needs and are able to look at problems from a variety of perspectives. Triangulating what I learned from each test reinforces or raises questions about the people, about the pictures of people I'm forming in my head. For example, when people's Myers-Briggs type result suggests a preference for S, focusing on details, and J, 
planning, and they come out as executors on the team dimension assessment, there's a very good chance that they are more detail-focused than right-brained and imaginative, which means that they would likely fit better in jobs that have less ambiguity and more structure and clarity. F. Focusing on tasks versus focusing on goals. Some people are focused on daily tasks while others are focused on their goals and how to achieve them. I've found these differences to be quite similar to the differences between people who are intuitive versus sensing. Those who tend to focus on goals and visualize best can see the big pictures over time and are also more likely to make meaningful changes and anticipate future events. These goal-oriented people can step back from the day-to-day and reflect on what and how they're doing. They are the most suitable for creating new things, organizations, projects, or what have you, and good at managing organizations that have lots of change. They typically make the most visionary leaders because of their ability to take a broad view and see the whole picture. In contrast, those who tend to focus on daily tasks are better at managing things that don't change much or that require processes to be completely reliable. Task-oriented people tend to make incremental changes that reference what already exists. They are slower to depart from the status quo and more likely to be blindsided by sudden events. On the other hand, they're typically more reliable. Although it may seem that their focus is narrower than higher-level thinkers, the roles they play are no less critical. I would never have gotten this book out or accomplished hardly anything else worthwhile if I didn't work with people who are wonderful at taking care of details. G. Workplace Personality Inventory Another assessment we use is the Workplace Personality Inventory, a test based on data from the U.S. Department of Labor. It anticipates behavior and predicts job fit and satisfaction, singling out certain key characteristics and qualities, including persistence, independence, stress tolerance, and analytical thinking. This test helps us understand what people value and how they will make trade-offs between their values. For example, someone with low achievement orientation and high concern for others might be unwilling to step on others' toes in order to accomplish their goals. Likewise, someone who is bad at rule-following may be more likely to think independently. We have found that something like 25 to 50 attributes can pretty well describe what a person is like. Each one comes in varying degrees of strength, like color tones. If you know what they are and you put them together correctly, they will paint a pretty complete picture of a person. Our objective is to use test results and other information to try to do just that. We prefer to do it in partnership with the person being looked at because it helps us to be more accurate and at the same time it's very helpful to them to see themselves objectively. Certain attributes combine frequently to produce recognizable archetypes. If you think about it, you can probably come up with a handful of archetypical archetypal people you meet over and over again. The spacey, impractical artist. The tidy perfectionist. The crusher who runs through brick walls to get things done. The visionary who pulls amazing big ideas seemingly out of the air. Over time, I came up with a list of others, including shaper, chirper, tweaker, and open-minded learner, as well as advancer, creator, cat herder, the gossiper, the loyal doer, the wise judge, and others. To be clear, archetypes are less useful than the better fleshed-out pictures created through the assessments. They are not precise. They are more like simple caricatures, but they can be useful when it comes to assembling teams. 
Individual people will always be more complex than the archetypes that describe them, and they may well match up with more than one. For example, the spacey artist may or may not also be a perfectionist, or may be a crusher, too. While I won't go over all of them, I will describe shapers, the one that best represents me, in some depth. H. Shapers are people who can go from visualization to actualization. I wrote a lot about the people I call shapers in the first part of this book. I use the word to mean someone who comes up with unique and valuable visions and builds them out beautifully, typically over the doubts of others. Shapers both get the big picture and the details right. To me, it seems that shaper equals visionary plus practical thinker plus determined. I've found that shapers tend to share attributes such as intense curiosity and a compulsive need to make sense of things, independent thinking that verges on rebelliousness, and a need to dream big and unconventionally, a practicality and determination to push through their obstacles to achieve goals, and a knowledge of their own and others' weaknesses and strengths so that they can orchestrate teams to achieve them. Perhaps even more importantly, they can hold conflicting thoughts simultaneously and look at them from different angles. They typically love to knock things around with other really smart people and can easily navigate back and forth between the big picture and the granular details, counting both as equally important. People wired with enough of these ways of thinking that they can operate in the world as shapers are very rare but they could never succeed without working with others who are more naturally suited for other things and whose ways of thinking and acting are also essential. Knowing how one is wired is a necessary first step on any life journey. It doesn't matter what you do with your life as long as what you are doing is consistent with your nature and your aspirations. Having spent time with some of the richest, most powerful, and admired people in the world, as well as some of the poorest, most disadvantaged, in the most obscure corners of the globe, I can assure you that, beyond a basic level, there is no correlation between happiness levels and conventional markers of success. A carpenter who derives his deepest satisfaction from working with wood can easily have a life as good or better than the President of the United States. If you've learned anything from this book thus far, I hope it's that everyone has strengths and weaknesses, and everyone has an important role to play in life. Nature made everything and everyone for a purpose. The courage that's needed the most isn't the kind that drives you to prevail over others, but the kind that allows you to be true to your truest self, no matter what other people want you to be. 4.5. Getting the right people in the right roles to, in support of your goal is the key to succeeding at whatever you choose to accomplish. Whether it's in your private life or your work life, it is best for you to work with others in such a way that each person is matched up with other complementary people to create the best mix of attributes for their tasks. Manage yourself and orchestrate others to get what you want. Your greatest challenge will be having your thoughtful, higher-level you manage your emotional, lower-level you. The best way to do that is to consciously develop habits that will make doing the things that are good for you habitual. In managing others, the analogy that comes to mind is a great orchestra. The person in charge is the shaper, conductor, who doesn't do, meaning they don't play an instrument, although they know a lot about instruments. They don't do so much as visualize the outcome and see to it that each member of the orchestra helps achieve it. The conductor makes sure each member of the orchestra knows what he or she is good at and what they're not good at and what their responsibilities are. 
Each must not only perform at their personal best, but work together, so the orchestra becomes more than the sum of its parts. One of the conductor's hardest and most thankless jobs is getting rid of people who consistently don't play well individually and with others. More importantly, the conductor ensures that the score is executed exactly as he or she hears it in his or her head. The music needs to sound this way, she says, and then she makes sure it does. Bass players bring out the structure, here are the connections, and here is the spirit. Each section of the orchestra has its own leaders, the concertmasters, the first chairs, who also help bring out the composer's and the conductor's visions. Things in this way has helped me a lot. For example, with the bond systemization project I mentioned earlier, having this new perspective allowed us to better see the gaps between what we had and what we needed. While Bob was a great intellectual partner to me in understanding the big picture problem we wanted to solve, he was much weaker at visualizing the process required to get us from where we were to the solution. He also was not surrounding himself with the right people. He tended to want to work with people who were like him. So his main deputy on the project was a great sparring partner for mapping out big ideas on a whiteboard, but a lousy one for fleshing out the who, what, and when needed to bring these ideas to life. This deputy tested as a flexor, meaning that he was great at going in whatever direction Bob wanted, but lacked the clear independent view needed to keep Bob on track. After a few rounds of not making progress, we used our new tools for understanding people and acted on them, pushing Bob to transition to a new deputy who is especially skilled at navigating the levels between the big picture ideas and the discrete, smaller projects required to bring them about. Comparing the new deputy's baseball card to the original deputy's, she excelled in independent and systematic thinking, which were essential for having a clear picture of what to do with Bob's big ideas. This new deputy brought on other layers of support, including a project manager who was less engaged with the concepts and much more focused on the details of specific tasks and deadlines. When we looked at the new team members' baseball cards, we could quickly see them lighting up in some of the areas around being planful, concrete, and driving things to completion, which were areas of weakness for Bob. With this new team in place, things really started to hum. It was only by looking hard at the complete Lego set required to achieve our goal and then going out and finding the missing pieces that we were able to do it. Bond systemization is one of the countless projects that have benefited from our frank and open approach to understanding what people are like. And to be clear, I have just scratched the surface of what there is to know about mental wiring. In the next chapter, I'll bring everything you've read about up to now together and break down the essentials of decision-making. Some decisions you should make yourself, and some you should delegate to someone more believable. Using self-knowledge to know which are which is the key to success, no matter what it is you are trying to do.